I thought with, with class one, what would be good to do would be to sort of go back and take a look at God's house throughout scripture. Um, one of the most encouraging things about the Bible is when we're looking at things like this, there is one consistent message. And it, it really drives home to me that we, we have a, a creator that, that gave us this book, the Bible, and his, his one consistent message throughout scripture is one of those things that you can, you can look to and to, to, to support that, that faith that he is the creator and he gave us this word. Because if you did really have um, different writers writing this on their own over thousands of years, you would get different messages throughout scripture. And that's, that's definitely not the case with all of these themes that, that flow right through God's word. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this then. Let me see if I can pull up uh, my notes here too. Okay. All right. So when we look at the, the household of God, um, Timothy is just an excellent place to go to when, when we're looking. And uh, he's, he's really writing to, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy to, to explain not just his own behavior, but in trying to take care of an ecclesia, um, how everybody should behave in, in God's house. And that's, that's really what he calls it. You look in First Timothy, Timothy 3.14, uh, Paul says, I am writing these, these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And this is really in the context of, of Paul's just explained how uh, men should act in, in, in praying in the ecclesia how women should act, how overseers should act, how deacons should act, how all these different responsibilities need to, to come together to uh, really lift up God's house, to, to bring order to God's house, and to be able to, to support everybody and to, to have an environment where everybody can, can grow and be supported. Uh, you look at some of, these, some of these key phrases that come up, like the, the pillar and the support of the truth. It's, it's the household of God which is the, the church, this is the ecclesia of the living God. And when we, when we look at this as a household, it's, it's, not, it's not just a building. It's, it's not really even a building at all. That's the metaphor that's used, but it's really God's family. It's, it's his sons, his daughters, his, his family that he's inviting to be a part of his eternal family forever. And that's, that's how God looks at his house. That's, uh, that's the, the family that he wants us to be interacting with. When you, when you go back to the very beginning, oh yeah, sorry. Um, this is also in context of this, this really interesting verse here in verse 16, where he follows this, this up with the, the household of God and talks about uh, really God manifestation in, in Jesus. He says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory and really this this uh this pathway for for god manifestation for god's glory to be revealed in his son and the and how god was 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 saving his son and and revealing his his godliness in him is the same pathway that that god is taking with us and that he's he's um bringing us into his family he's he's uh revealing his glory to us in in jesus and uh, giving us this opportunity in, in the end to be to be to join in with that glory as part of his household. So when we go back to Genesis, then 
and look at the first time that the the house of God comes up. It's in the context of when Jacob is is having to flee from his family, and he he must have traveled all day trying trying to get away, and it says that he's he's exhausted. Um, he, he gets toward Haran, and what he does is he takes one of the stones of the place and puts it under his head, which. I mean, how tired do you have to be to, to sleep with a stone for a pillow? Uh, he must have been exhausted. So he has this dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And see, that's that's one of the things that uh, is sort of like a, a recurring theme throughout Scripture, is that God, through his angels, is, is among us all the time, all the time. And what happens is we learn it and we forget it. And we're not looking for, for his hand working in our lives through his angels. We're not aware of the angels that are working in our lives and are, and are with us all the time. And here Jacob is, is surprised that here he's, he's left his family and yep. now he gets this vision. And he sees that the angels are in this place as well. And he's like, how, how can this be? I, I, I didn't know that, that God was here with me. And he's afraid in verse 17. He says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so he takes that stone that he had, had, he had used for a pillow and he sets it up as a pillar. Uh, it's the, remember that, that word from, from uh, second Timothy. And, uh, he, pour, he pours oil on his top, he anoints it, and he calls the name of that place Bethel, the, the house of God. And he says, this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And he was so inspired at that time, uh, he, was, he was so excited that, that God was still a part of his life, that he says that he'll, he'll surely give a tenth to God. And you can see that Jacob's still a little bit in his, in his bargaining mode because what he had said was, if God will be with me and, and bring me back to the, my father's house. And I, I wonder if he viewed this as a little bit of uh, payment at this time. But really, this begins his, his journey of interaction with, with God's angels. And uh, you, you see how uh, he talks about the angel that had been with him throughout, throughout his life in the end. And um, he, he was always aware from this point on that the angels were a part of his life. And he was always looking for their help and always seeking the, the help of God through these angels. And I, I think it's something that, that we need to be aware of as well uh, in our walks and in, um, in, in our family life and also in our, our servitude in God's house. Um, if, if we could look with the eyes of faith, if our eyes were opened like Elisha's servant and we could see the angels around us all the time, we would act differently. Uh, there's there's no way that I would do some of the things I do if I was aware of of the angels around me all the time, but also it's it's an encouragement because God is active in our lives. He's he's there. He's present. He's working with us and trying to to work in us the 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 great work that He's prepared us for. Uh, think think about this. I mean, it looks like with with the the new vaccines coming out we might be getting together by summer. I mean, if everybody's vaccinated by spring, early summer, we could, we could be back in the hall. We could be having our first memorial service where we get to see all of our brothers and sisters in person for the first time in over a year. And you think about the, the joy that we'll have at that time, just to be together in the same room. 
And if you think about it, if you can remember it, think about the angels because they're ascending and descending on that place as well. And there will, there will be just as much joy, if not more, for them to have brought every individual in this ecclesia back to that place again and to, to have worked through all the difficulties that people faced, all the, the new opportunities that people had in, uh, in, in this different life that we've had for the past year and to, to bring us back to that place where we get to see each other again. And it's, it's going to be something that I try and think about um, because it'll, it'll help me, I think, uh, just in, in my walk uh, as an individual, but also as, as my walk as I, I work in, in God's house, to be aware of the angels that are there and excited to work and are, are definitely there in, in our midst. One thing I didn't say at the beginning, but I meant to, was that um, I thought Brad's classes in, in Sunday school are really good. And um, the participation that he gets in his classes is also really good. And I I'd encourage anybody to, to stop me. I'm going to try and stop at, at different times and, and ask for comments. But if anybody does have a comment, please just um, please just join in. Because this is... This is God's house. It's something that we're all a part of. And uh, I know we all have uh, good good experiences in, in looking at these things. And nothing that we look at tonight is going to be something new or something different. These are all just reminders to, to sort of give us context for when we go to look at the practical things and, and how we are working in God's house. Maybe look at some of the things that we might do differently, some of the things that uh, we're doing now that are working very well, and continue to just... Uh, to, to improve and to, to help everybody to get involved in, in God's family. Hey, Andrew, uh, it's Eric. I had a, a comment, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was, yeah, I was just, uh, I was just kind of wondering how, how people actually visualize angels in their, in their world around them. If, if uh, you know, maybe I just share how I, I think about it for, and it doesn't really make, make sense necessarily, but sometimes maybe having a concrete image in mind might help. But I think about angels sitting in various places um, around around where I am. So sitting on a couch or on a table or up on a, you know, up on a cupboard or someplace that wouldn't be a normal place to sit. But, you know, um, that that sort of has stuck with me and helps me to just kind of make it real, I guess, just to think that they're inhabiting empty seats around me. You know, Eric, I remember that year at Idlewild when you walked around in a white robe all day. Yeah, those, yeah I actually, it wasn't me. I actually picked, uh, picked couples, uh, uh, a man and a woman, a brother and sister to, uh, and, and uh, someone made robes. It might have been. Oh, is you, Sharon? Yeah. Made robes and uh, and they were um, yeah they just walked around Idlewild around the camp and they were supposed to be you know quiet and and contemplative and you know and just as a presence walking around and I, I remember Christian Russell because he was one of the angels on one day saying that uh, that it completely changed his entire day his whole experience of Bible school just thinking. I, I need to actually represent an angel today. So anyway, it was just kind of a fun thing to make it real for my class at the time. That's really cool. I, I really like those practical ways to look at this. I, I find myself that uh, I'm much more aware of the angels. Like when, uh, 
when I, when I feel like I've been saved from like, from like bad things or um, if something very good happens, but it's, um, it's more hard to, to see that in, in daily life when like there's none of those extremes happening and those good practical ways to, to, to remember that are really good. I remember um, when my daughter, Ruthie, um, we were, we were in Indiana at um, our, our parents' house and uh, Ruthie fell out, fell out of a window, like just went right out. Like she was, she climbed up on a windowsill and went out where there was just a screen and uh, like it was like a four foot drop onto grass and she was perfectly fine. But it made me think because uh, like six feet in the other direction was a window that's the same height and looks the same. And uh, if she had climbed up there, it would have been like a over a one story drop onto pavers down below. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like those are the times where I am very aware of, of the angels working in our lives, just protect our kids. Um, just like so many times where uh, like you, you can, you can only do so much protecting for your kids. Uh, and like, you just cannot watch them all the time. Uh, we, we do our best, but there's, there's those times where you're just so aware that um, not only do we need help, but that we can be thankful that that help is there in, in time of need. Hey, Andrew, you probably won't remember this, but I can still remember one time when mom was up there. We used to listen to your prayers at night when you were real young. You were probably like five or six years old. And you used to lay on your bed all the way over to one side. Finally, mom asked you one night, why do you sleep way over on the side of the bed? And you, you told us it was so you left room for your angel to sleep on the other spot. <laughs> I don't were, remember you, that. No, but you, you were really young at the time when you said that. It's... <laughs> I bet mom will remember. <laughs> That's the, the faith of children. Yep. No, that was a good one. All right. Um, so when you when you look in, in Haggai, and this is the time of the, the building of, of God's house after return from captivity, and this is a really good uh, a really good section of scripture to, to look at when we're talking about working in God's house because they were literally working to build God's house and you get Haggai, you get Ezra, you get Zechariah, where, um, where all, all of the scripture is about uh, getting up and, and working and participating in, in God's service. And there's, there's just some, some really good scriptures throughout here. Uh, I'd, this section in Haggai, um, I'd like to say it, it struck me and I, I found this first by myself, but the, the truth is that I was listening to some, some classes by Harry Tennant and, uh, if you haven't heard classes by Harry Tennant, please please go and listen to them because he has a way of um, bringing like the the most profound scriptures to light and doing it in such a conversational tone that it's uh, and making them so practical uh, that it's it's just wonderful and uh, he'll bring out these points much better than I can. Um, there's there's some classes on our conduct in in the House of God on Christadelphian Bible talks and I, I thought they were really good on all of these subjects. So when, when he looked at this section, um, <laughs> it's funny because I just talked up Harry Tennant, but what he said was that uh, he could hear John Carter speaking to him uh, <laughs> when, in this section uh, and reminding him about, about this, these little words in here, this, this house. Because it says in Haggai 2 verse 3, it says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? 
So this house in its former glory would be Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? And so now he's looking at the ruins or at least the, the foundation that was laid. And he says, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. See, that's, that's the encouragement that, that I see in, in the work of the angels, that here's, here's God's spirit abiding in our midst. His, his workers are there helping us day by day. And we can, we can take courage in that. And we don't have to, to worry because we know that God is there to help. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they'll come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. And see what he's what he's doing here is he's he's talking about buildings through history, Solomon's temple, the, the present, the present building, and then the future. And he calls them all this house. Because God doesn't look at his family as a building. What he's doing is he's bringing an eternal family out from the nations, calling them to be a part of his family, and inviting them to be servants in his house. And that that is a living house. And it's the same eternal house from the beginning to the end. And so he just calls it this house all the way through. And in Zechariah, um, in, in Haggai, you get a, a lot of, of Haggai just sort of berating the people and saying, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, don't, don't build your own houses. You should be building God's houses. Get up and, and work because God is, God is with you. Just do it now. And in Zechariah, what you get is sort of the, the, the behind the scenes of what's going on at this time. And he, he reveals um, in, in the visions that God gives him all the work that's going on behind the scenes to make this possible. In Zechariah 2 verse 8, what you get is how, how God views this. He says in verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they, will be, that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to, uh, to me, uh, to the Lord in, the day, in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the land, in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. And he says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And that's, that's the way that God views what's going on in, in this time, is that somebody is, is um, the, the people in the land that were antagonistic toward his people, we're touching the apple of his eye. That's the way that he, he looks at us. We're the apple of his eye. He cares for us. So much so that when, when these people were in distress, 
he's aroused from his holy habitation. And it's, it's not like God is, is stuck. He's limited to what's going on in heaven. He is active in our lives. He's dwelling in our midst and he's, he's active and, and standing up and helping us in our time of need. And uh, I, I think we've, we've all seen these verses in Zechariah 4, uh, but I, I just keep, I keep going back to them because uh, this, this lesson with the angels is, is just so critical. Uh, when, you, when you look in Zechariah 4 and you, you get revealed again what's, what's going on in the background here, um, the angel says to, to Zechariah, he says, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of, um, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. So Zechariah says, well, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And you can imagine that uh, the angel's a little bit surprised and maybe a little incredulous by this because here's, here's the representation of the, the angels that are working behind the scenes to make all of this possible. And when Zechariah sees it, he says, what's this? <laughs> and he's saying it to an angel that's, that's working in his life, that's, that's giving him these visions at this time. So the angels are like, you don't know this is this is me this is the work that that i'm doing this this is uh my my fellow brethren that are that are trying to help you but zechariah says no i i don't know what this is so the angel says this is the word of the lord to Zerubbabel, saying not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord of hosts so this this is god's spirit being enacted by the angels he says, what are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace to it. For he, who, uh, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. And so there's the angels again, working behind the scenes, and not just working, but excited to see God's family grow. This is, this is their, their work throughout eternity to be, to be bringing people into God's family to join them in that work. And that's really, really our hope is to be a part of that. It's a, it's a good reminder that even when uh, it seemed like things were, were impossible at this time, that God says, it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but it's through my spirit. And we, we have God and we have these angels that are are working in our life to, to make things possible when they seem too difficult for us. So God is growing his house. Now we see that in Isaiah 56 verse one, it says, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. See, this is, this is God's plan of salvation all the way from the beginning is that he's going to add people to his house, going to grow his house, his family, and that he's going to, to bring people in to be a part of it. And so he says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And that, that word there means hand. It's going to give them a hand. It's going to help them when they, when they need it. And a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him 
to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. And this is, uh, I think this is pretty cool. Whenever you get to a point in scripture and you can point and say, that's, that's me, that's talking about me. Uh, like you get to Revelation 16 and you get to like the, the current time. You're like, ah, there we are. This is our point in history. This is talking about us. We are the foreigners that God is bringing into his family. God is, is, uh, is inviting us to be a part of his house, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. And what he promises for us is a name better than any other name. It's an everlasting name. He's inviting us into his house of prayer for all peoples. And he's just going to continue to do that until his house is filled with his glory. Uh, you can see how that works out and um, how our hope is, is really to, to join the angels in, in God's family. Um, when you look in Ezekiel 1, what you get is that this, this Yahweh angel comes into, into the land. And what he's going to do is he's going to, to come through Jerusalem, come into the temple and the glory of the Lord is, is going to get like picked up like uh, riding a chariot and it's going to go out. It's going to go out from the land up, up to the north. And it's, uh, it's, it's not going to come back really until uh, the time of Ezra. So what you get though, when, when you're looking at this, this angel that's, that's coming in, you see in Ezekiel 1 verse 24, it says, I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. So what you get is that the, the sound of this angel is the sound of a multitude. It's the, the multitude of angels. And on that, which resembled a throne, high up uh, was a figure with the appearance of a man. And so you get, you get this, this man then that is, is going to be showing forth God's glory. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And what you get there is a, is a pretty cool little metaphor in the rainbow. There is the, the glory of God shining through his multitude, which is at this point the, the angels, and it reveals a likeness of God's glory. And I don't, I don't think anybody would say that staring into the sun is more beautiful than seeing uh, a rainbow, right? And what, what God is trying to show us is that his glory reflected in many different colors, in many different ways, and his servants brings about a beauty that's just even more beautiful than if he was on his own. And I think that's pretty special. That, that, that's what God is inviting us to be a part of. Because we see that uh, by Ezekiel 40, when God is, is looking forward to the time when a, a new temple is going to be built in Jerusalem, and uh, what, what Ezekiel sees is the vision of, of the, the glory that's coming then into this temple. He says in, in 43 verse 1, it says, then, then this angel led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And again, 
His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. So right back in the beginning, this vision of, of um, the glory coming in in the multitude, which we hope to be a part of, is like the same that he saw when he saw the angels. And the visions which were, uh, and the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. See, that's, that's our hope, to be a part of that multitudinous glory, that we get to, to shine forth God's glory in, in everything that we do at that point, in being eternal servants in his eternal house. And really to, to share the work that the angels are doing right now. There's a, a really interesting section of scripture here in Isaiah 22, um, which I think is taking worth taking a look at. And it's sort of, um, well, it's interesting. Let's, let's look at this because this is in the time of, of Hezekiah, er, yeah, in the time of Hezekiah. And it's looking at one of, one of his servants, which was Shebna. And God is not at all happy with Shebna. And his job was to be uh, in, in charge of the royal house or household, you see, in verse 15. So God says to him in verse 16, he says, What right do you have here? Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. And he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a, into a vast country. It's like when you're, when you're done with a sheet of paper, you just crumple it into a ball and then chuck it in the garbage. And that's, that's what he's going to do with this guy, Shebna, who uh, apparently was was not doing a very good job as, as uh, being in charge of the royal household. So he says, uh, there you will die, you shame of your master's house. I will depose you of your, from your office and I'll pull you down from your station. And it's interesting when you, when you look into this, um, the last time we see Shebna, which is actually in Isaiah 37, uh, he's, he's with this guy that um, God's going to talk about um, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And it says that at that point that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is, is in charge of the royal household. But it calls Shebna a, a scribe. So it seems like Shebna was still, was still working with, with Eliakim. And he's, he's called one of the servants of Hezekiah at that time. So it's, um, people wonder if, if maybe Shebna turned it around a little bit, where he, he may not have been doing very well here. And God gives him this prophecy, and he may have repented at that time. But we, we don't know the, the full end of, of what happened with that story. But it's interested, interesting to see him uh, deposed from his office, but still active and participating in, in, the, in, in service in Hezekiah's house at that time. So what happens, though, is God's going to use this opportunity to not, not just talk about um, what's happening in the time of Hezekiah, but he's going to look forward to his son. So he says, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely around him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And there, there we know that, that this is talking about Jesus. Uh, you, you had the, the name of God in Eliakim and also the son of Hilkiah. 
But here in, in verse 22, you see the key of the house of David. Uh, and this is actually quoted in, in Revelation 3, verse 7. And it says, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia, uh, and to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put for you an open door, which no one can shut. So here's, here's Christ taking up the key to the house of David, and he's, he's opening this door for, for people to come in. And it says uh, here in verse 23, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So here we, we start to see the glory of, of the father's house represented in, in Jesus. He's a throne of glory to his father's house. And what follows are two very interesting verses. Um, I'll, I'll share my ideas on this. And um, I, I think maybe that this is what Harry Tennant was saying as well. But uh, these are these are difficult verses to the point where some people say that there's like translation errors, that uh, the, the verses are out of place, that they just don't fit into to what's going on. So let's let's take a look at them. It says, "So they will hang on him, all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars." So here we are. Uh, all the least of the vessels, um, from bowls even to jars, all the glory of God's house is hung on Jesus. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So, what is this talking about? Are, are we, by, by hanging our, our hopes on Jesus, going to, to be cut off, to be broken? In what way was, was Jesus cut off? And I think really you, you do have to look to the crucifixion, right? And so we have, we have a clue that this, this has something to do with crucifixion. How, how are we cut off, though, in, in that happening? And uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at. And I think it actually gets picked up in the New Testament a little bit because these are, this is one of those sections of scripture where you look at it and you're like, all right, Paul, Peter, somebody, just, just quote this verse for us and explain to us what it's saying, please. And we, we don't get it. We don't get a direct quote of this verse. And that would have been nice, but we don't have it. But you can look in 2 Corinthians and, and three chapters that are talking about God manifestation, about God's glory that we see in the face of Jesus and being developed in us. And some of these same things come up. So let's, let's look at this. In, in 2 Corinthians 3, um, Paul starts out by talking about uh, this, this metaphor of, of us being a letter because people were, were criticizing him and um, they, they thought that, that maybe Paul wasn't uh, there for their benefits or, or something like that. And he, he says like, look, uh, are, are we be beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters 
uh, as some letters of recommendation, letters of commendation to you or from you. He says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And he's getting at is that here is God's house. God's house is, is a letter of Christ, written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And it's written in us. It's made up of us, the, the people, the, the God's family. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And he's going to go into this comparison then of, of the glory of, um, of God revealed in law, and the glory of God revealed in this, this manifestation then through Christ and then into his, his family as, as his servants. And to compare them is not even close. He says, but in the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came, uh, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. And this is as Moses is coming down from the mountain with, with the tablets and he's, he's uh, talked with the angel of God. It seems like some of that glory is still being reflected in the face of, of Moses. And it was, it was too much for the people to look at and he had to veil himself at that point. And so what, what Paul is saying is, look, if that was glorious, imagine how much better this will be. How will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has, uh, was glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. It's like if, uh, if, if you have a light that's, that's shining in a dark room and you, you have like a little flashlight or something and you're, you're shining it around and it, and it seems to, to light up things very well. But as soon as you turn on the lights, you can't even see the light from the flashlight anymore. It's just completely overwhelmed. He says, for that which fades away was with glory, much more, uh, much more of that which remains is in glory. And he's comparing the glory of, of the two different ways uh, that, that God was working with his people. And he says that, that this is just so much better. The, the glory that we see in the face of Christ is so much better. Um, and you look in, as he picks this up in, in chapter four, and he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, uh, alluding back to the veil that, that Moses had, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He says, look, if, if we can't look at this without a veil, then that's, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. This is, this is the outworking. This is, this is God's plan of salvation as he's bringing us into his family, that he showed us the way in Christ, that we see God's glory reflected in the face of Jesus, and he wants us 
just as the rainbow to reflect that glory as well. And the way we do that is as bondservants in God's house for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And we're going back to all those, those clay bowls, those clay jars that are, that are hung on that peg. And that's, that's our current situation, that we have mortal bodies. And that God gives us this hope of eternity, but he doesn't want us to be proud and to think that it's, that it's something that, that comes because of our own greatness. But he gives us these mortal bodies so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. See, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And it seems like uh, going, going back, that this may be what is being talked about here, that here we are, earthen vessels, hung on the, on, on the peg, on, on Jesus. And that, that peg was going to be cut off and that Jesus was going to die, that he lived that death to sin all through his life and then literally was cut off on the cross. And what, what Paul says is that in, in us, uh, hanging on it will be cut off as well, is that we're caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So that even, even if those vessels fall and if those vessels are broken, what's going to happen is that what will be revealed is God's glory, that, that treasure that's in those earthen vessels that's, that's been in us the entire time, that the, the, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He continues on in, in chapter five, and it's just, I find these sections of scripture where all of these ideas just, just sort of come together uh, to, be, to be really encouraging. Uh, I think it's just so, so much evidence of, of God's inspiration. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is, our, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. And you can look through scripture at, at that idea of, of not being made with hands and how that's, that's Jesus. See, the, the working wasn't of, of ourselves, it was of God. He made this house, not with hands, but he made it. It's eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house, mortal body, uh, for indeed in this house, which is our mortal bodies, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. For indeed... While we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. At, uh, looking through these sections, that's, that's it, right? This is, this is what we're doing now, that we're, we're longing for what's coming. We're longing for the kingdom. But God has prepared us for this very purpose. 
to be working in his family now, to be working in his family for eternity. It says, who gave us the spirit for a as a pledge. He says, therefore, being always of good courage. And you go back to Haggai too. He says, take courage, take courage, take courage. And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You think about Zechariah, where all these all these things are being revealed, where uh, where our human sight is just lacking, and we we can't see the angels, and we we long for the day when our eyes are opened, and we can see God fully at work in our life. But now we see by the eyes of faith, and so we are of good courage again. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's, that's Haggai too again, right? Take courage and work. Because that, that work that we do in God's family are opportunities to be pleasing to our Father, the one that has prepared us for this very purpose. So, and uh, I know, I know everybody here works, and I, that's that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, there's there's an old saying uh, about ecclesias that 20% of the people do do 80% of the work, and um, it's that's different from ecclesia to ecclesia. But it's it's been something that I that I've noticed is largely true, and I don't even include myself in that 20% <laughs> because uh, I think especially in the last few years with young kids, uh, I've I know that that I've pulled back and that I, I, I'm not as involved as, as I otherwise uh, probably should be. And um, I think God's given me more opportunities now as, as the kids are growing up. And um, I say that like I'm taking care of my kids all the time. The honest truth is that, that Marjorie is <laughs> even preparing for these classes. She's probably ready for these classes to be over so that uh, I'll be back to, to putting kids down normally and things like that. But uh, it's, it's, um, he's, he's giving me opportunities, I think, now to, to get more, more involved. And I think the, the more involved you get in the Ecclesia, the more aware you are of everybody else's work and how much work is, is going in to, to making sure that God's house runs, that people are taken care of, and that it, it runs in such a way that, that everybody can be uplifted and encouraged. And we have that opportunity then to get involved, to take courage, and to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. And uh, I'd, I'd encourage everyone, and I know you already do, to, to just, just be involved. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at, at practically what that means and, and how um, we get other people involved and, and maybe increase that number from 20% to 100% because that's, that's the ideal, right? To get to get everybody involved, um, to give everybody an opportunity to to be pleasing to God. In Second Timothy, this is a verse that I go back to over and over and over again um, because it it condenses so much into into so few words. If you're looking at at God's election. And, and we are in this context because we're looking at how God invites us to be a part of his house and also free will. You get in, in this verse, both things. Um, so 2 Timothy 2.19, 
Paul says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's, that's on God, right? God invites people to be a part of his family. That's, that's, not, um, that's, that's not a decision we get to make. Uh, God is, is merciful and he, he listens to us, I, I believe, and um, he's gracious to us and in, invites our, our kids to be a part of his family and uh, can, can work with, with friends and um, he, he listens to our requests. But ultimately, that is, that is God's choice. It's God's choice who, in, who he invites to his family. And the flip side of that is, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So here we are in, in, God's, in God's house, and what God is looking for is to see what we're going to do. And what he asks is for everyone who names the name of the Lord to abstain from wickedness. He continues on and says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor, because that's, that's the choice, right? He's not going to make you work in his house. That's a choice that we have to make. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And that's, that's where we want to be, right? Preparing ourselves to take every opportunity that God gives us to be pleasing to him. So uh, I'm not going to call these lessons or anything new, um, but these, these are some of the reminders that we get out and uh, looking at, at this study of, of God's house and that this, this is God's house. It's his family. And we can be thankful that, that he's called us to be a part of it, but let's not forget that it's, it's God's house. His angels are among us. They're rejoicing in the building of God's house, of his family, and we should be rejoicing too, to be excited about the work that, that God has given us. God has given us Jesus as a faithful head of his house. He wants us as members to reflect his glory just as we have seen it in the face of Jesus. And take courage, because God has prepared you for this purpose, and he sent his angels to help us. So take these opportunities he gives us to be pleasing to him. Because really, this, this is God's plan of salvation. This is how he's developing us into a people that will live with him for an eternity. So if you remember last week, what we talked about <clears throat> was that we, we looked at the, the three parables that, that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, where he, he uses those parables to talk about who is the, the wise and the faithful servant that uh, is, is working in the master's house, uh, giving, giving food to the servants at the appropriate time. And uh, we looked at how that applies to our individual walks uh, as, as servants in God's house. And we, we made it uh, all the way through looking at the, the third parable 
uh, with the sheep and the goats and how our service should be effective. It, it should be something that, that encourages our brethren, that, that feeds them in, in their time of need. And um, some, is something that is, is, uh, is, is good because um, what Jesus does is he looks at that as us serving, serving him as if we were doing those things for him. So we, we want our service to be like that. Uh, and we looked at sort of a, a negative example at the end with the life of Elijah. Um, not that we wanted to beat up on Elijah too much. Uh, he, like his, his whole, his whole life, he lived trying to, to bring people back to God. And um, it seems like, although he wasn't uh, too effective at that in this life, that, that um, God is, is giving him another chance. And um, it's, there's a lot of lessons that he learned in, in his life and that we learn in our lives. And we, we thank God for those lessons. So, uh, but we didn't, what we didn't want to do though, is to, to try and take everything on ourselves and, and not to, to consider the work that other people are doing in the Ecclesia and to just think that we're the only ones that are, are working hard. We're the only th ones that are doing things the right way and nobody else is doing it like I'm doing. And uh, because of that, I'm, I'm, I'm all alone in my work and, and nobody else can help me. So that was the attitude that we wanted to avoid. So we're going to look this week at serving together. And that's really a, a big lesson that we get out of Elijah is that we, we need to serve together. The Ecclesia is given to us as a place uh, for God to test us, to teach us, and to, for, to help us to grow into, into servants in his family, to teach us how to act. And we, we talked about how we're being trained up to work as the angels. And this is the place where it happens, when our interactions with each other in the Ecclesia, and it happens by working together. When we look at effective service, um, this came up in Brad's Sunday school class a few weeks back when he looked at Acts 6, when there was the issue where the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, were, were not getting fed. They were not getting the services that were required. And you can see how that would happen. Like um, you think about like the, the Koreatown, the, the LA Hispanic Ecclesia here, and how much interaction like we have sometimes with, with our brethren there, even though they're Christadelphians and they're so close, that having a language barrier can be make it very, very hard to, uh, to have like a daily, weekly, even monthly communication. And I've, I've been there once. <laughs> I didn't understand a word of the exhortation, but uh, you understand that you're with wonderful brethren and wonderful sisters. And it's, it's so nice to, to see people like that, but you can see how this language barrier would have, would have caused an issue. So in order to fix it, the, uh, the 12, Apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Uh, so they said, we'll select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so here's a case where um, the 12 are literally given a chance to feed their brethren. And they say, no. We're, we're going to pass on that because we have other important work to do. And like at, at, at first glance, it seems like, man, that's, that's sort of weird. Why would they pass on this opportunity for service? But it was, it was important at that time to delegate because they did have important work to do. And really what you find out is that they're feeding their brethren spiritually. Uh, other people need to feed their brethren physically and all were working for the good of their brethren. And it's not like the, the disciples, the, the, the 12 apostles at this time were um, 
trying to get out of, of a service where they could feed their brethren. It was that they recognized that with the ecclesia growing as it was uh, and in need of, of leadership that they had, they had a huge responsibility already and they weren't going to be effective in, in this job as well as that job. And so they got other people involved and everybody effectively served their brethren at that time. And that's, that's a good lesson that uh, even though everybody's not doing the same, the same job in the ecclesia, we all have the same goal and we can all work to go towards that goal together. Uh, you can look back in, in Exodus 18 when the children of Israel are, are coming out of Egypt and what they do is they meet up with Jethro, which is Moses's father-in-law as they're coming out. And um, Jethro sees what's going on with Moses where uh, all day long from, from morning until evening, he's, he's sitting there uh, by himself as a judge and all the people keep coming to him. And Jethro says like, that's, that's not good. You're going to wear yourself out. And you're going to wear these people out because they have to wait in this giant line to, to get a, a judgment. And so Moses listens to his father-in-law and he, he, he did all he said. And he, he sets up these men and um, they he delegated this responsibility and they could judge the people at all times. And if there was something that was too difficult for them, they could bring it to Moses. And that seemed to be like a really good solution. So uh, again, it's it's the same idea that we cannot do it alone. We're not really meant to. We're not made to. And we need to bring in other people to help. And uh, it brings opportunities for other people to help. We can be the ones that are not Moses because there is only one Moses here. We can be the people that, that come in to help uh, when there's that opportunity to do so. And I think it's also interesting here that, that Moses listened to his father-in-law. I mean, he didn't have to, but he saw that it was good advice and he didn't, he didn't say like, well, I'm, I'm Moses. I'm, I'm God's servant. What do you, what do you know about this? He, he saw good advice and he took it. And I think that's important for us to do in, in our ecclesial walk as well. And, and just so you guys know, um, I'm, I'm going to rush through some of these verses, some of these slides, because I'd like to get to the end a little bit of this class early. And what I'd like to do is have a time then to uh, hopefully discuss and have ideas for how we can really implement these these ideas in our, in our ecclesias and uh, try, try and really get everybody involved. So I'm going to rush a little bit right now, but um, hopefully we'll end with quite a bit of time for, for comments at the end. Um, and in Romans, in Romans 12, uh, you get uh, the, the end of, of Paul's giant disposition on the atonement, about how God is, is calling us out of the world and he's saving us through his son. And the, his, his argument then in, in verse 12 turns to, what, is, what does this mean? In chapter 12, he says, what does this mean for us? And he says, look, I, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, look at what God has done for you. Look at where you've come from. And the, the natural conclusion to that has to be that we're going to work for God. Our, our whole life is a sacrifice, an acceptable, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And that's, that can be the, the only outcome from, from looking at what God has done for us. So he says to, to do that, everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Because what he's going to get into is that in your, in your worship, 
in your in your sacrifice that you are interacting with your brothers and your sisters. Don't think that that your worship, that your your journey and and working for God is the only one that matters. We have to be looking out for our brethren. And what he what he says here is, uh, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then down in verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So this, this is our goal. Our goal is to serve the Lord. And in order to do that, we have to give preference in honor to one another. Don't think that our role, which has been given to us by God, is more important than others because their role has been given by God too. And we're all individually members of one another, the body of Christ. And we're being built up together to, to be united in this one work, even though God has given us different roles, given us different responsibilities in the ecclesia. Uh, this, this idea comes up in Corinthians as well. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, First uh, Corinthians 12 verse 18 says, but now God has placed the members each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And so he, he, said, he says down in verse 27 of, of chapter 12, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. The, the same ideas that God has put us where he wants us in his ecclesia. And so let's, let's be happy with that and also celebrate our, our brethren, uh, recognizing that, that they have been placed there by God as well. We can look at Hezekiah's reform as sort of a case study of, of how this happened. And I, th I think it's a really good positive example of a situation where uh, the Ecclesia was, was not in a good situation. If you remember what happened in, in Micah 3, Micah comes to uh, the leaders of, of Jerusalem and he says, therefore on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And because of that, the people took this to heart. Hezekiah takes it to heart and the, the leaders of, of uh, Judah at that time take this to heart. And what they do is they, they start this reform. And it's just a, a wonderful reform where what Hezekiah does is he gets everybody involved and makes sure that he invites everybody to be a part of this. Uh, in Second Chronicles 29, uh, Hezekiah says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. And there he's, he's, uh, he's talking to the priests specifically, trying to get them motivated to get excited about this because they were going to be the core of this reform, the ones that were going to get everybody else involved and branching out from them to, to not just Judah, uh, but Israel as well. You don't really have time to look at all the verses for all this stuff, but um, the, the reform started with cleansing the house and, and also the priesthood and, and the Levites with the goal of restoring worship in God's house for the glory of God. It started with personal responsibility, just like we looked at last week with the, the parable of the wise virgins. 
um, and we looked at, uh, sorry, and uh, the the reform continued with celebrating the Passover, and they did that in the second month because the cleansing took too long. They they weren't ready, and so some people could have said, "Well, this this is not the appropriate time to be doing Passover. You have to wait until next year. Let's just wait. Why 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 would we do this now? It's it's not the right time. It's not the time that God has told us," which was. Um, which is sort of the, the attitude of, of the people in Ezra's time. And Haggai has to, to chew them out for that and say, like, really, you're going to say this isn't the right time, but you're going to invest yourself in, in your houses and in um, doing work for yourself, but you're not going to work in, in God's house. And he says, that's not right. That's not the right attitude to have. Every time is the right time to be working in God's house. Don't, don't put it off. So what they do is they invite all Israel and Judah to, to participate in this Passover and that was important because uh, at, at this time, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, of, of good ha- good things happening in the north. And if if I was in charge of this reform, my tendency would be to say, "Why would we get these people in the north involved? They're just going to ruin things. They're going to drag us down. They're they're not going to help the situation. Uh, it's already a difficult task that we have ahead of us." Why would we? Why would we put this this big hurdle in front of us when obviously nobody's going to come, and if they do come, they're just going to be a problem. And I could see my myself having that attitude in this situation, which is not good. And um, what what happens is that Hezekiah sends messengers up there, and they they go over across the Jordan as well and try and invite everybody to this this feast, and people come, not everybody, but quite a few do. So what you find out, though, is that those from the north, uh, they ate the Passover, even though they weren't ritually clean, because they had not been been living that lifestyle. They weren't prepared for the Passover. And uh, they they get this message that they're, they're to come, and they say, all right, we're going to do it. And they come down and eat the Passover, and they weren't really uh, ritually ready for it. So Hezekiah has to ask God to, to heal them at that time. And... Um, what ends up happening at the end of, of the week, the seven days, is that everybody says we, we should do this another seven days, which is often our attitude at, at the end of a Bible school. You get to the, the last couple of days of Bible school and you're like, man, I, I wish this could just keep going. And in this case, they said, we wish this could keep going. And they did. They're like, let's, let's do this another week. And so they, they all, they all uh, kept celebrating the feast for another seven days. So the end result of this is that everybody that leaves this this two-week Passover is so motivated to work in God's house that they go home and they take this this motivation, this this joy to be working in God's house, and they apply it in their lives wherever they lived. It says that everyone cleansed Judah of idol, idols on the way home. And uh, this this was um, something that, that needed to be done. Um, you can you can imagine how happy the people were to do it and uh, instead of saying like um instead of sending people out and, and forcing people to get rid of rid of idols and making this like a like a legal thing everybody was uh, it was their joy to do it so so people joyfully fed their brethren the levites with a tithe and that was the end result of this is that the the Levit- levitical priesthood is restored and everybody is is giving so much of the tithe at this time they're they're so excited to participate in this and to have the priesthood back that they end up with all of these these mounds of food 
all the, the mounds of the things that were given and they had to open these storerooms and store everything and catalog it because everybody was participating in the ecclesial service at that time. And it was just a, a really a really joyful time and a really good time and a really good example of, of how we can get involved. The, the flip side of this is that there's really two ways to look at this. Uh, you could look at this uh, and say, look at this complete chaotic mess where everybody's getting together, nobody's adhering to the rules. Or you can say, look at how heartfelt everybody is. Look at how effective this is in, in this attempt to change the, the hearts of the people. And it might not be how we would choose to do things. And it might not be um, something that if we had, they had had all the time in the world to prepare for this, they might not have done it this way. But everybody was doing their best in this situation. And it was, um, it was something that worked. You consider how, how well it worked at that time and how good the, the outcome was and God really blessed their efforts. So what happens is at that time, uh, it says that Hezekiah did throughout uh, all Judah and he did what was good, right and true before the Lord is God. And every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. And at that time, it seems like Judah or uh, Jerusalem almost about doubled in size. There was all of these these great works, these civil works that were going on, and uh, a, a huge time of building and uh, positive activity. And there's also this warning uh, because we talked about, if you remember, in, in Matthew five sixteen, where it says, "Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven." And we talked about how difficult that that idea is to be working and to be participating and to be giving it our all and for that to be bringing glory to God instead of ourselves. And what ends up happening at the uh, sort of the, the end of Hezekiah's life is that God tests him. He says, well, I, I want to, to know uh, what's, what's going to happen uh, and what's, what's in his heart at this time. And so he sends these, these envoys down from Babylon and what Hezekiah does is he shows them everything that's in his house. He says, there is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And so God says, well, all of these things that you showed them, all, all of these things that, that you thought that you were heaping up for yourself and you could show off with all of this stuff, nothing's going to be left. And so that's, that's really the warning there to, to not have that attitude, to remember through our whole lives that although things are going well and you are putting the work in, it is to the glory of God and it is God working through us. Uh, do one, one more look at another example here in, in Nehemiah, because I think this is another really positive example where Nehemiah comes in, he, he sees a need that needs to be met. He, he sees that the, the wall is, has not been built. And um, he's, he's like mourning. He's, he's like super downcast back in, the, uh, back in Babylon when this is happening. And um, he's, he's so upset by it that the king sees that he's upset. And uh, the outcome of that is he gets this opportunity to go back and to rebuild the wall. So he comes back into um, an ecclesia where he had not been living. And he is sort of a little bit of an outsider at this time. And what he does is he, he says in, in Nehemiah 2.17, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. And so it's a good example of how to get people involved. It, it wasn't that I have this great idea. I want you all to do uh, 
I want you all to fulfill my vision. He says, look, there's there's a need that needs to be met. And God has has blessed uh, my efforts so far to, to do this. And I think he'll bless all of our efforts if we can work together to, to get this done. And so all the people join him in, in doing that. And you see in Nehemiah 3 that all, all, of, all people of all backgrounds were, were helping out with, with this. There's the priests, the Gibeonites, if you remember the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites who had deceived Joshua, and they were made to be um, hewers of wood and, and servants for the temple. Here they still are working on this wall. There's goldsmiths. Like if you were a goldsmith, you're, you're like a, a very specific uh, skill and in, in doing intricate work. And here they are like shoving around rocks and, and doing like all this, this really tough manual labor. Perfumers, the same thing. And uh, not, not really somebody that you would think of, of hauling around rocks and, and building up a wall. There's officials. And uh, one of the officials, it says specifically that all of their daughters were, were helping with the work. There's the Levites, the temple servants, merchants, all working next to each other. And you sort of get this idea that there's like this uh, utopia, like Bible school time again, where everybody's working together and it's it's like all, all of this joy and all of like everything's just uh, uh, going as, as well as it possibly could. And there's no difficulties and um, it's just a great time to be together. And then you get to see all of the difficulties that they face. And this is the same exact stuff that, that we will see in, in our work in ecclesial life. It is not always going to be uh, a bed of roses. There's going to be difficulties. And you see uh, within Nehemiah's case, there's these difficulties from without with Sanballat and Tobiah. You see in Nehemiah 4, it says, now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard, they were very angry and all of them conspired to come together and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. And what, what a great response this is to adversity. When, when you see a problem like this, the response is first, ask God for help. And second, make your best effort at doing something about it. They didn't just sit on their hands and say, uh, God, God save us. They got up and they kept working, and they, they tried to come to a solution to, to fix this, this issue. And so what, what Nehemiah says is he says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard uh, that this was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And I, I just think it's uh, so impressive how Nehemiah is including God in everything that they're doing. He sees God's hand in, in this adversity and he sees God's hand in, in the solution, just remembering that the Lord who is great and awesome is with them. And when, when things seem to work well, um, because it says when our enemies had heard the, that it was known to us, and the way that happened was that the Jews who lived close to these people, they came and they kept telling Nehemiah that, look, these people are coming. You better, you better watch out. What Nehemiah does is he attributes it, that to God, that God had frustrated their plan, even though it was people coming to him and, and telling him the plan, it was his, his efforts to get people to, to guard and to be ready for an attack. He says, God had frustrated their plan and he attributes that glory to God. Uh, in Nehemiah 20, he says again, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. And at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us night 
uh, by night and a laborer by day. So none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. And so here's an example of where uh, they're, they're rejoicing that, that God is, is fighting for them. And so they can continue the work. And instead of being discouraged, they work harder. They're working day and night. And there's, there is no time where they're, they're not ready to be um, at, at, at the service of, of ready to, to be a guard, ready to be a laborer. They they're, have their clothes with them all the time. They have their weapon with them all the time. They're ready at all times for service. And I just thought that was a, a really impressive thing that even in the face of adversity, they're just, they're, they're participating. They're, they're not, um, they're not uh, discouraged by this. They are continuing to see God's uh, hand in, in everything that's happening and responding, responding to it in a really good way. Uh, there was also detractors from within, uh, even though it seemed like there was this u utopia time in the community at that time. Uh, well, you find out in Nehemiah 3 verse 5, when it's listing all of the builders uh, of the wall, it says, and next to them, the Tekoites re uh, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And so you can, you can imagine how discouraging that would be when, when people are putting all of their work, all of their effort into this, and some people aren't willing to participate. Um, in Nehemiah 6, uh, what happens is that there is a, a prophet, uh, Shemaiah, who speaks to, to Nehemiah and he says, look, uh, Sanbella and Tobiah, they're, they're coming for you. Uh, what we should do is we should, we should get into the temple and close the doors because we'll be safe in there. And Nehemiah's like, I'm not doing that. How can I go into the temple? That, that's not right for me. And he thinks about it, and he perceived that surely God had not sent this guy, but that it was Tobiah and Sanballat that had hired him. And they were doing that to, to try and have an evil report against him. And so he says, remember God, Tobiah, and Sanballat, according to, their, to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. And can you imagine trying to do a great work in the ecclesia and here are prophets that are not just not willing to participate, but are actively working against him at this time. In uh, Nehemiah 5, um, what ends up happening is you find out that there's there's a famine at this time. And uh, so not like Bible school, where there is clearly no famine and we're eating continuously, here the people were struggling to find any food whatsoever. And they're, they're coming and they're saying, look, uh, please, please feed us because we have nothing. Um, and there's this great, great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brethren. So Nehemiah sees this and he's very angry when I'd heard their outcry in these words. So he contends with the nobles and the rulers and says to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Because what had happened is they had mortgaged their fields, they mortgaged their houses, they mortgaged everything that they had to these nobles and the nobles were taking advantage of them while they were doing the work. And Nehemiah says to them, look, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? So you see what's happening behind the scenes is that these nobles, when, when these people couldn't pay up on their mortgage, they sold them. They sold them to foreigners 
And here's Nehemiah trying to, to buy all of these people back, making a best effort to, to bring these people back into the community. And he finds out that his, the nobles, his Jewish brethren, are selling them off again. And like, what, what a discouraging thing to see like in, in the ecclesia while you're trying to do this work. But it wasn't something that, could, that they could let get them down. And instead, they, they fix this issue, and they move on, and they continue the work, and they, they build the wall, and they finish it. So in ecclesial work, there's going to be some people that re will refuse to participate. Some people will actively work against you. Some people will take advantage of you. But you have to remember the entire time that this is God's training ground. You see his hand in everything, the good and the bad, and trust that he's going to bring you through this, and you don't get discouraged. You continue the work and trust that, that if it's the right thing, that God is going to bring it to completion. So I've combined some reminders from, from this week and last week. So there's a lot of reminders. I probably won't remember these reminders next week. So if you don't either, that's okay. So remember that service to God starts with personal responsibility. Remember that from the, the parable of, of the virgins, stay alert, be ready for every good work. Faithful service involves faithful work. We will all be judged by what we have done. To the faithful worker, God gives the inheritance. Remember that from the parable of the talents. Effective service involves caring for our brethren. It's an opportunity to show our love for Jesus and God, and it's hopefully not a burden, because there we have an opportunity to do for our brethren what we hope to do for Christ as well. And Christ looks at that as him working for, uh, for us, working for him directly. We can be grateful and take the opportunities that God gives us to show his glory at work in us. Give the glory to God. And this is just such a, a difficult thing to do. Um, and you see so many people fail at this um, in, in scripture. And you can see why. It's, it's just really a hard thing to do, to, to put in the work, put in the effort, uh, to put in the time, and then give that glory to God. We're not meant to work alone in the Ecclesia. Uh, we learned that from, from Elijah. You don't want to get burned out. Bring others in to help, just like Moses did at, at Jethro's advice. God gives everyone different abilities and prepares different jobs in his house so that everyone can be involved. And you'd be thankful that there's those different jobs and those, those different roles. And at the same time, we don't have to be the perfect person for a job. God is looking for willing workers, not for perfect results. Now, you see that with the building of the wall. All of these people from different backgrounds with different experiences all coming together to build this wall. And you can imagine that the perfumer section of the wall may not have looked like the same section as a bunch of farmhands who were used to shoving around rocks and um, were, were doing that work. Those, those sections of the wall be working not, were worked on by different people, and they would not have looked the same in the end. But the, the work was good nonetheless. And so all of those people coming from different backgrounds, all of their work was appreciated. And that's really what God is looking for, looking for willing workers that are willing to participate in that work. And don't get discouraged by difficulties we face from, from without and from within while working in God's house. And remember, it's God who is great and awesome. And, and to work for our families in God's house. I think those are, are all really good lessons that, that we can take in, in our walks, uh, both, both personally 
and in, in trying to to get everybody involved in in God's ecclesia. And uh, I, I think this this verse by by Paul um, just brings all of these things together. He says, "Now the God of peace." who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You have all of those aspects of appreciating that it's, it's God who has redeemed us in Christ, given us the opportunity to work in his house, and equipped us to do that. And he's working in us, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So we can give glory to him forever and ever in everything that we do. We're on class two, and this week the plan is to to look at serving in God's house and uh, look at our our individual walks and in, in our service. Um, last week we we looked at more of a general context of what it what it means to to be in in God's house. We we looked at the concept that um, this this is God's house. This ecclesia is God's house. It's His family. He's called us to be a part of it, and. Um, also that his angels are among us and we can, they're, they're rejoicing in the building of God's house and we should be rejoicing in, in the building of God's house too as, as God uses our ecclesias to expand his family. We looked at the idea that, that God has given us Jesus as a faithful head of his house and he wants us as members to reflect his glory just as we have seen in the face of Jesus. And also to take courage because God has prepared you for this purpose and he sent his angels to help us. So we can take the opportunities he gives us to be pleasing to him. Because really that's that's our goal, right? And in, in God's house and being his servants is we want to please our father. So the idea this week is to look at how that works. Uh, how how can we be pleasing to the father in, in our work as, as servants in God's house? So to, to start We'll look at uh, a couple of verses here in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, and they're largely the same because Paul looked at this section as so important that he copies like these seven verses and uh, just sort of pastes them from, from Ephesians to Colossians. And uh, in, in Colossians, this is in the context of how everybody is to behave in the house. And it goes through the, the fathers, the mothers, the children, and then also the slaves, because back then the slaves, the servants would have been a part of the house as well. So in, in Colossians 3.22, uh, Paul says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that, the Lord, uh, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And that's that's pretty important, right? That's that's really what our focus should be as we're working in God's house. It's not that we're uh, that we're like slaves to each other and like, oh, I, I wish I didn't have to do this for for Brother Ken. He's he's making me do Bible class uh, tonight. Our, our services, <laughs> our services to God, 
And really, this is an opportunity for for me to be to be pleasing to God. And sometimes I don't have my head in in that that space, but that's ideally where where it should be. Uh, Paul says a very similar thing in Ephesians six. He says, "Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart." With uh, with, I gotta move my camera, hold on. I can't see my own screen. All right. With, uh, with goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Oops. So this is this is ideally what what God is hoping that we'll do in in His family that we're going to be servants for Him, with sincerity of hearts and looking at this service as something that we can do for our Lord, for Christ, rather than just something that we're doing for for earthly servants. And that's, that's something that we can we can take into really every aspect of of what we do in in God's house. That. Um, that we shouldn't we shouldn't be looking at this as as something that's like a, a duty that we regret having to do or something we're like um, we're we're angry about or something that we uh, we feel like we're we're overburdened or or something where uh, we really don't have our heart in the service because if that's our attitude then we're not looking at this the way that God wants He wants us to be viewing this service as to Christ Himself. So when we're looking at the idea of, of our service, there's this really interesting section in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 that follows up right on the heels of the Olivet Prophecy, where the disciples had asked Jesus, what are going to be the signs of, of all these things that you're talking about with, with the temple being destroyed and, and all of these different things that, that were, were pointing to um, a, a time when, when Christ would, would come as king eventually. And they're like, how, how are we supposed to know this is going to happen? How are we going to be ready for this? And he follows that section up uh, with a prophecy and talking about how they in their service can be ready for the coming of Christ. And that was, that was something that James touched on in his prayer and I thought was, uh, was really good. So in Matthew 24, verse 42, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And I think that's that's something that we should emphasize and something that we should be honest about in our community is that nobody knows the day nor the hour when Christ will return. And it's not going to be the people that are out there with, with like spyglasses trying to see Jesus first that are going to be ready. It's going to be those that are serving in his house. So what does it mean to be ready? He says, for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of his household to give them food in their, at their proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So here's, here's the template. This is, this is what we want to be doing in, in our walk. We want to be the faithful the sensible slave whom God put in charge of his household to give uh, the, the servants their food at the proper time. That's, that's really what he's wanting us to do. And he's going he's gonna to expand on this. He, he uses all of chapter 25 
uh, three parables to expand on what, what is being talked about here. But um, one of the interesting things that, that comes up in, in this section of verses is the reward. What's, what's the reward here? And I'm actually asking you guys a question. You can unmute and, and answer the question. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, one of the things we get to serve with him forever. That's going to be a lot of fun. I, I, I'm looking forward to be able to do all the things I'm asked to do without getting tired. That's, that's the reward, right? In verse 47, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. That sounds like more work. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work, right? So if, if our reward is to continue to work in God's house, and to be given more responsibility in God's house, then hopefully what we're doing now in God's house is something that's enjoyable, it's something that we look forward to, and it's something that, that we can say that this is something that I want to be doing forever, because that's the reward. That's what God has promised us, that we can continue to do this work in his household forever. And like Jerry said, that we don't have to worry about being tired. We don't have to worry about all, the, all of our human failings, but we can do it perfectly in, in God's house. So what, uh, what Jesus does is he follows that section up with three parables that explain who these people are. The, the first one is the parable of the 10 virgins, and this is going to be those that are sensible servants. Um, obviously, if we go through all these parables, we're not going to get anywhere tonight. So just like briefly touching on some of the, the major points that come out of this is that there's, there's the five foolish that have lamps with no oil, and the five prudent or the sensible that have lamps and oil. And what you find out is all of these people sleep, but all are awakened by a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come, uh, come out and meet him. So what happens is the five sensible virgins, they, they get up, they trim their lamps, and the other five, they have to go and buy oil because they asked the five with the oil and they said, can you give us oil? And they said, no, there's, there's not going to be enough if we do that. So they couldn't, they couldn't borrow the oil. So the bridegroom comes and those who are ready went in and the door shut on the remaining five. So the, the moral of that parable is be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. So being on the alert means being ready. So even though all five or all, all of them slept, five were ready for the master's return. They were prepared to show their light. And that's that's really the, the crux of the issue, right? They were prepared personally. They were very responsible in preparing themselves to do work. And I, I say work because um, this has always been like a big question in, in this parable, right? Like, what what is the oil? What what can we say that, that fits all of these descriptions of the oil that uh, they're it was something that maybe technically you could borrow from somebody else, but if you did, then there wouldn't be enough. It's something that you can go and buy from oil sellers. Like what, what is the oil in this parable? Does anybody have any ideas? I always thought that the oil was the word of God because it's the fuel that allows us to do all the things that we need to do to have the faith, to be, to give, um, uh, sustenance to the household 
you know, his possessions are his, his people. It's not material things. Right. So I, I think that's, that's a good answer. And I think that's one answer. Um, myself, I think there's, there's actually several answers as to what the, the fuel is. Because if you, talk, start, if you start talking to, the, to different people, what you'll find out is that there's many different things that motivate people to do the work. And really what you get in, in the lamp, in the burning of the light, is a representation of the work that we are doing. You look at um, Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's a difficult thing. It's such a difficult thing that I made this extra animation to show you. It's an extremely, extremely difficult thing. <laughs> it goes against our very nature. Uh, this, this is something that's very, very hard. Uh, it's something that, we, that goes against everything that we learn in school and like a meritocracy where when you do something well, you get rewarded for you doing well and the glory goes to you. And what God is saying is when you let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, it should bring glory to the Father who is in heaven. How do we do that? Andrew, it's Kelly. What I think is funny about that question is sometimes I've, I've thought that like, I want people to know that I'm doing this because I'm a believer because the love of Jesus compels me to do this. And then when you say, then when you say that you sound like a, like you're boasting, you know, like, look how great I am. I'm doing this because of Jesus, you know, it just gets all, <laughs> gets all wonky. So I'd like to know the answer to this question too. And I, I think that's okay to boast because our boasting should be in, in Christ, right? That's that's what we do have to boast about. Mm. So that's I, I think what you're saying is a really good point is to acknowledge that everything that we do is God working in us. That's a, that's another possible possible answer for that oil, right? Is that when the when the oil is burned and the the light shines that. Um, that God says that he's, he's working in us and he's, he's making his will uh, happen in us, that when that happens, that, that light shines forth and brings glory to the Father. So Russell was saying is that the transformed character, and that certainly fits. So it's the, it's the uh, God uh, has transformed us to be like his son, right? So we've taken on that, and if we... Uh, do those good works naturally out of our transformed character, then that is the ultimate glory of God. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and um, we we have an opportunity in in everything that we do, both in our ecclesia, uh, at jobs, at uh, everything that we're involved in, to show forth Christ's character. And when we do that people do notice. They, they notice when you behave differently. 
And um, sometimes people will ask you and they'll say like, why, why are you like this? <laughs> and uh, then you have the opportunity like Kelly to say, well, because of Jesus, <laughs> because of, because of, I, I know that it's, that it's God working in me and we, we put our boasting in, in Christ and um, we, we have an opportunity there to, to actually verbally give that, that glory to God. Hey, Andrew, I was thinking of the uh, rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? Only one is good, and that's God. So if you tack that on to Kelly's comment there, it's important to, to explain to people that I wouldn't be like this if it wasn't for the working of God in our life. Mm -hmm. I, I'm no different than anybody else, but God has changed my life. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a really good point. So when you, when you start looking throughout the Bible, um, what you find out is that people all over the place, um, good people, people that, that followed um, what God was asking them to do pretty much all their life um, had, had a big struggle with this. Like you look at, at Moses when he struck the rock and he says, like, look, do I have to bring water out of this rock for you? Um, you look at, at Solomon, who's, who looked around at all of the things that, that he had done, all of his great works that he talks about in Ecclesiastes. Um, you look at Uzziah, who was lifted up in pride and, and thought that he was going to be a part of, of the priesthood. Um, we'll, we'll look at Hezekiah tonight. He's also a good example of this. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel 4. He's given the vision of, of the tree that's chopped down and... Um, Daniel tells him that, look, uh, God is going to, he's given you this great kingdom. He's going to take it away. Uh, please change what you're doing. Uh, and maybe God will, will grant you this kingdom longer. And he lasts a whole year, <laughs> a, a whole year before he, he, look, he goes out and he says like, wow, look at all this great stuff that I've built. So like, even, even like when we're, we're told like in a, in a vision from God, what, what's going to happen, it's still very hard for us. To, to give that glory to the Father. It goes against our nature. And you can see that, that people struggle with this. Uh, I think, I know I struggle with this, that uh, when you do something well, you, you sort of like pat yourself on the back and you say, yeah, yeah I did it. And uh, we, we're not really giving glory to, to God at that point. Um, and it, what you do is you, you look at all the hard work you put into it. You look at the time that you put into things. You look at your effort that you put into things. And um, what can happen is you say that, yeah, I did this, I earned this, um, that somebody else might not have done it as good as me. So yeah, uh, this, this, was, this was my work and uh, I'm, I'm going to take the glory for it. And that's, that seems to be a, a difficulty that, that a lot of people have in scripture. And I think just in, in general, a lot of people have. So uh, when we're looking at, at filling the lamps with oil, um, that Brian mentioned that uh, part of that is going to be going to be scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So it's it's not just the reading of scripture that matters, but it's applying it right. It equips us for every good work. But if you go out and you buy yourself a whole new set of tools and they look like on the left of there, like they've never been used ever, 
uh, then what good are they? <laughs> you could fill your garage up with shiny tools, but if they stay shiny and, and neat like that, then they've served no purpose at all. So this is something that needs to be applied in our lives. It's something that God is, is looking for us to actually use. We need to be equipped for every good work and take those opportunities to do the work. When you look at, at Hebrews, um, in Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore, since we receive the kingdom, which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I think that's another, another good motivation that people find to actually uh, do work that we may offer to God an acceptable service. Had, Paul continues in Hebrews 13, 20, he says, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and Paul so eloquently brings all of those things together and um, sort of a sign off here in Hebrews 13, just reminding people that it's, it's God, that's the God of peace, that's, that's given us Jesus. He raised him from the dead, given us the blood of the eternal covenant, and he's equipping us with that to do every good thing, to do his will, and he's working in us to do those things which are pleasing in his sight. So, and when we, when we recognize that, when we live that, then that brings glory to God. So looking at the, the next parable here in, in Matthew 25, it's the, the parable of the talents. And this is where the, the faithful part of, of servitude comes up. And if you remember what happens in the parable of the talents, some servants are, are given a, a different amount of money, uh, some, some five, some, some two, some one. And what happens is the master goes away then, and you get to see what those servants do with the talents. And a couple of those servants in, invest them, and, and uh, what they do is they, they, take, they take the money that they're given and they expand on it. And one of the servants... What he does is he buries it in the ground. And so when, when the master comes back and he asks what happened, um, you get the, the good and the faithful slave. And the master says, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the one that had just buried the things in the ground, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. And there's, there's a contrast, right? You have the good and faithful and the wicked and the slothful. So he says, I like the ESV here because it turns this into a question, which I think really fits. And he says like, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. And he says like, if you, if, if you knew that, if that's the way you thought about me, then you ought to at least have invested that, that money in the bank so I could gather interest. If you weren't gonna do anything with it, then put it in the bank instead of burying it in the ground. And really uh, what's, what he's exposing is that this servant was just lazy and didn't want to do anything at all. So and uh, in, in verse 29, you get the moral for to everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So there's, there's that contrast then. Um, and, and really what we want to be doing is, is making sure that we're working, 
because we've we've been um, the idea here is that God is investing in us. Uh, here, the investment is the talents, the money that He's given to these servants. Uh, Acts twenty verse twenty eight says, "Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He has purchased with His own blood." So there's the investment that God has has purchased this this flock with his own blood, with the blood of Jesus. And what he's expecting is that there will be a return on investment. And in order for that to happen, we have to work. We cannot be slothful like, like this servant here in, in Matthew 25, who just buried, buried that investment and did nothing with it. It has to inspire us to go out and to work and to bring a return on that investment. And if you notice, uh, again, what the reward is here, it's that everybody is given more. Even, even the one that ended up with, with 10 talents because he has given five and he made five more, he's given the extra talent from the, uh, from the, from the one that, that did nothing with his talent. So there's, there's more and more responsibility, more and more work that needs to be done that's, that's given to these people. And uh, again, if, if what we're hoping for is to, to get to the, the kingdom and, and put our feet up and uh, finally have, have a break for eternity, then that, that is not what, <laughs> where we're going. And if we have that attitude, then, then we're, we're going to be like this slothful servant because we're not going to be motivated then to actually do the work. When you when you start looking at, at verses about about this idea of of working, um, what you find out is that that God judges people by their actions, and um, there's uh, sometimes that we emphasize God's grace and that God accounts us righteous even before we do anything. All we do is we believe, and then. Uh, you get the flip side of that is that God expects us, if we actually believe, to express that faith in what we do. And so the, the judgment on our faith is what we do. That's the outward show of our faith. And you start looking for these verses throughout scripture. Uh, you look in Psalm 62, 12, that, uh, that God will recompense a man according to his work. Again, in Proverbs 24, 12, says, uh, does he not consider it, uh, consider it who weighs a heart? And does, not, and does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? In Romans uh, 2, verse uh, 5 and 6, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. In Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, um, 9, which is sort of where we ended up last week looking in 2 Corinthians, and we, we looked at that last verse, verse 9, where it says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And we looked at that as, as our motivation. The motivation is to work, Right? Because in verse 10, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So what, what God is looking for is he's looking for people 
that believe him, that are grateful for what he's done for them, and are going to express that in what they do in a changed life and people that are active in his family. Um, remember the, the verse from, from last week in 2 Timothy 2, uh, where it talked about uh, now in a large house, there's not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of, of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And that's, that's what we want to be doing. Um, not, to, not to beat a dead horse, but um, here's, a, here's a few more verses on this, this same thing. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, 17, uh, Peter says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, there's there's the idea that we want to be working, we want to be doing those good things because we're inspired by what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us. In Revelation 20, verse 12, um, uh, John says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. This is this is an interesting one, because some people wonder if there's actually a literal book or, or not, or if it's just a, just a, a figurative book. But it, it makes me think about um, how the how the angels view us as they're working with us, how how they know what uh, how we're doing, because I, I I'm not sure that they know our the thoughts and intents of our heart as as God does, and they they may get um, some insight into that if they if they talk to God and, and consult God, but it might be that the majority of the way they know how we're doing is by looking at what we do. And so if, if we want to show ourselves to, to be thankful and to be appreciative of the angels' work in our life, then the only way that, that they can see that is to see it in our behavior, to see it in, in the things that we actually do. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8 and 9, says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Um, and then, and then this verse in James, I think, is uh, really important as well, because um, we don't want to get the idea as we're reading through all of these verses. It talks about reward and um, being given according to our deeds. That we think that uh, when we get to the kingdom, that we can say, "I did it. Look at my deeds. Now, now give me my reward." That's not the point whatsoever. But um, the point is that what we're doing is we're expressing our, our faith and 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 what we do. And what God is willing to do is to, to uh, account righteousness to us by that faith. And what he gives us is the inheritance. And uh, James also touched on that in his prayer, which I thought was, was really nice. And that um, what God isn't giving us is something that we deserve. It's not something that we earn by, by doing these works, but he's, he's giving us a, a gift. So James says, even so faith, if it has works, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works, which is really, really the intent, right? That if, if we do believe, if we do believe that, that God sent Christ to show us the way to live, uh, 
that God sent Christ to to die to sin and to die on the cross to to inspire us to live according to his will, then we should express that faith, that thankfulness in, in what we do. It should be shown in our works. Um, I haven't asked any questions in a while. I should pause for comments. Does anybody have any comments before we continue? Faith is used uh, in two different ways, commonly. And one is as a synonym for one's particular brand of religion. And then uh, the other is the way in which James is using it that you're emphasizing uh, it. And uh, sometimes those two things uh, mislead us a bit. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, Paul's explanation of faith in, in Hebrews is, is excellent, that um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if, if you do believe, then you have to believe that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who, who faithfully seek him. And if, if we do believe those things, if we do believe, then we should have gratitude and we, we should express that gratitude in, in what we do. And, and faith really is, um, it's, it's not, it's, um, yeah, it's not, it's not like a, a doctrine. It's not like a, a set of rules or something like that, but it's, it's a, a real expression that we, uh, we trust that God will reward us and that God can bring us to that reward even even though we are incapable of it in ourselves. Andrew, I like that comment you made. I'm kind of going back a little bit, but the um, the juxtaposition between good and faithful to wicked and slothful, I think I had those words right, is kind of I never really matched those up quite that way. That kind of it kind of equates um, the opposite of faith being sloth, which is you know one way of looking at it but it, it it does add more emphasis to the idea that faith is action mm -hmm. not not inaction which was your point yeah yeah um i think um one thing that's that's hard to do as you're going through sort of like a thematic study like this is to stay true to context and um it might see like seem like i'm just jamming work and and stuff like that into to all the verses that we're looking at. But I, I think um, in, in that section in Matthew 25, really what is being talked about is, is our, our walk in God's house and, and the things that we do. And Jesus is really getting down to the nitty gritty of if, if you are going to be somebody that's going to be ready for the kingdom, then what God is expecting is for you to, to be working at it. And that's, that's not something that's going to happen. Um, like I said, by, by going out with like the spy glasses and trying to be the first one to spot Jesus returning, it's not something that happens by sitting in our homes and avoiding contact with everybody and just, just working on like our own purity or something like that. It's, it's something that is worked out in God's house and uh, being active in his ecclesia and, and our interactions with each other and expressing our, our faithfulness and our gratitude and trying to, to care for his children which is actually the next parable. Hey, Andrew, I was thinking as a follow-up on that, when you look at Jesus Christ as the ultimate example, look at what he did. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he—that's—he he spent his whole life doing that for other people. He wasn't just keeping himself sinless; he was constantly working on helping other people, preaching the gospel, bringing salvation to others, finding out what he could do to help. That was such a key part of his life. And and then he he's resurrected from the dead, goes to heaven, and he continues doing that to this day. Now he's in charge of the angels. Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate pattern that we're hoping to follow. Yeah, we, we talk about Christ sitting at his father's right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. But uh, the vision that you get in Revelation is uh, an extremely active Jesus. That's uh, um, he's, he's unrolling all of these scrolls. He's, he's looking at all of the work that needs to be done, and he's participating in all of it throughout history, uh, bringing us to the point of, of his return. You know, the balance between faith and works is kind of interesting, especially when we... Uh, Uh, talking to people from other brands of Christianity. It came up in Costa Rica when uh, I was down there and with, uh, I think it was Milton Drake and somebody else, we ran into somebody that they had met some time before and talked to who was a missionary from another church. And when he was introduced to me, he said, oh yes, you folks are the ones that believed you're saved by works. And uh, they come to this conclusion sometimes, I'm not sure about this fellow, but no, that because we uh, uh, make a point of being baptized. Mm-hmm. And then some, uh, as most of you are aware, uh, specifically reject the act of baptism because it is a work. So put on the spot, I just responded that no, we don't believe your works can save you, but we believe that your lack of works can condemn you. and we kept on walking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because it's, um, it's not even really, really a balance, is it? It's, um, they're, they're part of the same thing. And um, our, our works do save us if they're works of faith. And that's, that's, that's really the point that's being made. Some people look at, at James and at Paul and say they're, they're butting heads and, and talking about two different things. But really, you look in context, they're, they're both getting right down to the same point that you have to have faith and your faith has to inspire you to action. Uh, So the last parable in Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And this is where that, that part of servitude comes in where you're going to uh, feed, uh, feed everybody at at the right time. So um, what what happens in, in Matthew 25 and 31 is talking about when the master returns and this is really the judgment, right? Because he's separating sheep from goats. And we just looked at all those verses about judging people by their, by their deeds, by their actions. And so this parable explains what actions are the actions of the sheep, of the righteous servants. So he says to, to the one servant, he says to the one that's the sheep, he says, come you who are blessed of my father, inherits, and there you have it again, we're going to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Um, and you look at the good works that he does. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And so the guy says, well, truly, I, uh, he says, truly, I say to you, uh, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So we have an opportunity in, in our service in the ecclesia and serving our brethren to directly serve Christ. Because he looks at the things that we do to 
his brethren and our brethren as doing them to himself. Um, really, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity because it, it's not only an opportunity to serve Christ in this way, but, but also God as well. So let's let's look at the idea then of this effective service because really uh, the point that's being tried is trying to get across here is is looking at what you do and making sure that it's something that's that's going to be beneficial to to the brethren right it's something that's supposed to to serve the brethren to provide them food sustenance um, when you look at at Luke ten you get the the story of of Martha where where Jesus comes to to Martha's house and she welcomes him in. And she has a sister, Mary, and Mary's there sitting at the feet of, of Jesus and listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And the word for distracted there, the idea is to, to be like pulled in a bunch of different directions all at once, just to be like torn apart. And I mean, you can, you can see that happening in our lives as well so many times. Um, and so she comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, all of these things that were, were pulling her apart. But only one thing is necessary. For, Moses, or for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. This is a, this is a story that... Uh, really speaks to me because I, I like to cook. I don't like to cook 15 minute meals. I like to cook like the, the four hour meals on the weekends when I actually have time to cook. And, um, I am very aware that when I cook those meals, I'm not really doing a service to my family because, uh, poor Marjorie has to watch all the kids. Uh, I'm not really doing anything for, for my family with, with the, those hours of, of work you put into a meal like that. And um, yeah, the end result can sometimes be really delicious. Uh, I really enjoy it. And I'm also really exhausted at the end of it. And I'm just tired. And um, I, I still like, even, even after I'm, I'm not always a hundred percent there to take care of kids, to do, to do work in the house because I've invested time and, and energy in, in food. Uh, which is what Martha was doing here, and Jesus says that that's that's not really what we what we should be doing. Uh, when that parable wasn't about um, just just literal food, it's about uh, spiritual food as as well as as taking care uh, physically of our brothers and sisters. But really, what we should be doing is spending that time effectively, and making sure that our motivation and what we're doing is to, to really be there for our brothers and sisters and to uh, make sure that we're, our motivation is, is to be as helpful as possible. Uh, I find, it's funny, I, I sort of, I don't butt heads with my dad, but um, his, his meal preparation strategy is completely different than mine. If something takes more than 15 minutes, then it's completely not worth doing because he just has like so much other stuff that he's, that he's doing and taking care of other people in his house. And uh, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm slowly getting away from those those big meals, the, the big time wasting meals. But this is still something that that I know I do in my life. Um, and you think you think about this this motivation, like even for something like this, preparing a class. And uh, 
like I'll, I'll listen to all these great speakers when, when I'm preparing a class and what goes through my head is like, what if my class isn't as good as, as these speakers? And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. What kind of, what kind of idiocy, what kind of um, arrogance is it to think that my classes are going to be good as like the Harry Tennant's, the, the John Martin's that I listen to. It's it's like not even possible. And what is, what is my motivation? And even, even thinking that like, why, why am I worried about that? Why am I worried that everybody's not going to think that my classes is great or something like that. I, I want my classes to be helpful, but my motivation should be that this class is helpful not only to myself but to others, and that we can can learn these le learn things from these classes. And that doesn't mean that it has to be the most magnificent magnificent class. It doesn't mean that I have to be the most eloquent person ever, but that all we have to do is present the information in Scripture, because really, that's that's what's going to benefit people. And if we're doing that, then I don't think we can really go go too wrong. Um, oh man, we only have ten minutes left. Okay. So in in John five one through three, you get this idea that um, that whoever believes that that Jesus Christ is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him, and that's that's an idea that comes up in John quite a bit. Uh, where he talks about that if if you love God and you want to show that that love to God, then one of the best ways that you can do that is to show love to his children. And we have that opportunity in, in serving each other in the Ecclesia. And so he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when when we're working in the Ecclesia, we should not feel like like this donkey that's that's up in the air, weighed weighed down by all of these burdens that we feel like we we bear in the ecclesia, that should not be the way that we're we're looking at our, our walk in the ecclesia. Um, these are opportunities to serve God and to show our love for God. And if we're if we're feeling like that donkey, then something has gone terribly wrong, either in our attitude, or um, in the practicalities of how much we're, we're work we're taking on, and um, how we can how we can spread that work around with with other people in the ecclesia. Um, you look at Elijah. Uh, Elijah is a perfect example of this, where he felt like he was alone in in his work in the ecclesia. Um, you see in in First Kings seventeen one that he he brings drought on the land, and I say Elijah brings drought on the land. Uh, normally we think about it as God bringing drought on the land, but what Elijah says in in First Kings seventeen verse one he says. Uh, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so it makes it sound like Elijah could have ended that drought at any time. Um, so what, what happens then is there's, there's drought for like three years at that point. And what's, what's interesting is that, um, in 1 Kings 18, when that drought is going to end, it wasn't by Elijah's word. It was by God's word. Because it says that, um, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And you sort of wonder, like, what's going through Elijah's head at this point? Because he's, he's brought drought not just on the people of Israel, 
but also on this this widow of Zarephath, who, uh, who God is going to send him to. And you sort of look at the the hand of the angels in Elijah's life at this time, and it's it's fascinating to see how patient they are, uh, how merciful they are, and how they let Elijah uh, go through his his personal walk and the direction that he's looking to go to, but are also giving him all of these nudges to say, you're not by yourself. Look at the effect of what you're doing on other people and maybe reconsider a little bit what you're doing. Because as soon as he proclaims this drought, um, the angels send him to the widow of Zarephath, who's preparing her last meal for her and her son. And you're like, wow, don't don't you see, Elijah, the, the effect of, of what you've brought on all of these people? This is causing immense suffering. Um, and what's what's interesting is that he actually forms an attachment to this widow of Zarephath to the point that when when her son dies, he says, O oh Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by, by causing her son to die? And you're like, wait a minute, Elijah. You brought calamity to her to the point where she's preparing her last meal and is prepared for, for her and her son to die. Uh, did, did you even like think about, about that when, when you brought the, this drought on all the people? So he, he keeps going on, and uh, when, when he speaks with Obadiah, um, he seems to just completely blow Obadiah off. And you find out that Obadiah has been feeding these, uh, these hundred prophets, which is going back to the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, that here Obadiah is actually caring for these people. He's feeding them. And immediately after that, in 1 Kings 18, verse 22, Elijah says, I alone am a prophet of the Lord. Just after Obadiah said he's been feeding a hundred of them. But that's his attitude and, and the way that he's walking, uh, and the way that he's serving. So he goes through all of this. He does um, does a sac the sacrifice on, on Mount Carmel. Um, then you find out that, uh, that Jezebel is, is seeking to kill him and he gets depressed and he, he runs away and... Um, he, he comes to um, Mount, Mount Horb, I think. And the angel says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So you can see, you can sort of see like where his attitude is that he thinks that nobody is doing anything good up to his standard. Uh, even though he had seen evidence of, of other people that were willing to, uh, to, to walk with God, that there was the, the hundred prophets that Obadiah was feeding. He'd seen the widow of Zarephath who was walking faithfully. And um, what God does um, after he, he gives the same response twice, actually, uh, God, God shows him that the way that he was doing things wasn't working. All of these grand gestures but that it was going to be the still small voice that was going to reach people. And also that he preserved 7,000 people who had not been the knee to the bales. And there were 7,000 people in the land that uh, God was, was preserving. And Elijah had just sort of blown everybody off. So the, the first thing that the angels do after that is they, they have Elijah go and get other people involved. Uh, not people that Elijah would have chosen. He sends them to Haziel to anoint him king of Aram to Jehu, to anoint him king over Israel, and then sends him to Elisha to be God's next prophet. When Elijah had said, 
There's nobody else that can be a prophet except for me. And uh, it's, it's interesting the, the way that, that God works in his life at this time and, and tries to open his eyes to realize that he doesn't have to do it all himself. He can get other people involved and doesn't have to just burden himself um, where he feels like he's at the point where he's burned out and he can't do it anymore because uh, his, his work in the truth has just become too burdensome.